Happy Thursday, the last day in November. Tomorrow we head into December. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Chris Quinn here with Layla Atassi, Lisa Garvin, and Laura Johnston. Laura, what's wrong with this picture? Frank LaRose, the Ohio Secretary of State, whose job is to make sure we have completely fair and balanced elections, admits he had help from anti-abortion forces in redrafting the abortion amendment ballot language. How does he justify that completely unbalanced decision? I found this so appalling because you're right. He has called himself in the past the impartial referee calling balls and strikes <laughs> for the elections, which is what he's supposed to do, right? He was elected to be a statewide leader and protector of elections, also does stuff with business filings. But this is his job as the top elections official. But basically, he admitted in this meeting with Strongsville Republicans that the three groups behind the opposition to issue one in November basically crafted this language and said they wanted the word woman in the summary ballot language that appeared when you actually filled out your ballot, even though that was nowhere in the actual amendment. It said pregnant patient. And when we pushed him on this, the spokeswoman said he's going to stand up for the conservative values for which he was elected. Like he's not Mm -hmm. supposed to be a partisan hack. He's supposed to be the fair and impartial head of elections in Ohio. Actually, I think it's worse than that. You know, I have a, a, a running theme in emails I get from probably 20, 25% of the people I hear from that our job, one of our jobs in, in our role in this community is to fight back what they see as forces of fascism. And there are a whole bunch of people that come out and say, oh, that's ridiculous, never in America. But but this is the kind of evidence that there are people trying to do that. He is completely corrupting the intention of his job. That's not his job to sway the language. He's supposed to be right down the middle. And it's not just that he wasn't right down the middle. He's saying, I don't represent people who who are for abortion. I only represent the anti-abortion forces. So I'm going to use my position to unbalance the scale. That is how you get into the anti-democratic area. We have elected officials today who have refused to obey the Constitution, every one of them, Mike DeWine, the auditor, the the House Speaker, the Senate President. They defied the Constitution on gerrymandering because they could get away with it, and they did. That's the slippery slope you head down. And because he says, I'm representing these folks, and there is no consequence— we all get numb to it. Everybody just accepts, okay, we have elected officials that are no longer doing what their jobs are. And that that element of the readership that keeps telling me it's our job to call this out, they're right. We need to call this out. Frank LaRose did wrong here. He is not supposed to do this. Right. And they're not even trying to backtrack from it, right? The the spokeswoman says the ballot board is a bipartisan body made up of members with at times differing opinions on how public policy should be defined. It's common for members to disagree. The language can be true and defensible at the same time. It was upheld as accurate by the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court, which we know is biased toward Republicans because Sherrod Kennedy is leading it. And it's uh, the ballot board, yes, has members from each party. But Frank LaRose is the head of the ballot board and the head of all elections in Ohio. How do you have faith in your elections if the chief guy is telling you, I only represent conservative interests? 
Well, and it goes beyond that, though, because this was the the legislature passed the heartbeat bill. They were going to all but prohibit abortions. The residents of Ohio don't agree with that. An overwhelming majority of the residents of Ohio don't agree with that. So a group put this on the ballot. They drew the language that was approved by everybody for what this what this would say. So when this goes to mm-hmm. the ballot board, they're supposed to write language that's in keeping with the sentiment of the proposal. And they didn't. They bastardized right. it to fit their own beliefs. He's violating his oath. He's violating his duty. And he's proud of it. This is where democracy starts to go down the tubes. And it, remember how it was pretty short amendment. This is not long. I think it was one page and they fit most of it on the ballot itself. It's just, they changed some things. It wasn't like they took the whole ballot amendment and made it one paragraph. Like if you you remember voting, it was a long ballot. I'm so glad our editorial board did not endorse him in his reelection. It was the one Republican incumbent. And we said, no, he's a bad guy. He's not honest. and he's from Northeast Ohio. He yeah. went to Copley High School. Like, it's not like this is, you know, where you say, oh, Huffman, he's like this guy from Lima that, you know, he, he grew up surrounded by Northeast Ohioans. Yeah. Yeah. This is a this is a horrible story. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway investment firm lodged some big allegations against Brown's co-owner Jimmy Haslam and the pilot truck stops that the Haslam family used to own. Lisa, what does this say? Well, this is a counter lawsuit that Berkshire filed this week. They're claiming that the Haslam family tried to bribe at least 15 pilot truck stop executives to get them to inflate company profits that would have forced Berkshire to pay more for the remaining 20% that the Haslam's own of that company. A hearing, I believe, was slated for later today. Not sure about that. But the suit claims that the Haslam's offered bonuses to executives well in excess of their yearly salaries, and they wanted them to to you know, uh, inflate the uh, profits based on the final sale price of the Haslam's remaining 20% stake in Pilot. And the, the suit claims that the offer was made at a dinner at a country club in Knoxville, Tennessee back in March. And they say that they gave the same offer to at least four more high-level executives outside of that dinner. The Haslam's claim that their 20% stake is worth about $3.2 billion. So this suit is in response to a suit that the Haslam's filed. They claim that Berkshire changed its accounting practices in an effort to understate pilots' earnings. It's called push-down accounting, and they say that resulted in a lower net income. So Berkshire actually bought 38.6% of Pilot in 2017 for $2.7 billion. They increased their stake to 80% this year for $8.2 billion. And now they're saying they wish they bought the whole thing in 2017 at a better price, but the Haslam's weren't willing to sell back then. They're looking for a January trial date so the claims can be measured against the Haslam's lawsuit to determine the actual proper value of Pilot. Look, it's a civil suit and people make allegations and it goes back and forth. And so it doesn't say it's the truth. But we should point out Pilot Flying J has a ugly history that their employees were were jacking their customers, cheating their customers, led Mm -hmm. to all sorts of federal charges. And the company ended up pleading guilty. Jimmy Haslam and and uh, and the Haslam family were not implicated in that. They were not charged with anything. They denied any knowledge of it. But if it's true that they were offering to pay a lot of money to people to change 
the books to make it look better for them so they get more money. That is seriously ugly business. And I would think it would move out of the civil and into the criminal because that's you're not allowed to do that. Uh, we'll have to see how that develops. It's explosive charges against yeah. the Haslam's. Very much so. Yeah, but I didn't even know about the initial Haslam lawsuit. So this is all news to me. Yeah. And look, you're talking about big money. They're going to fight back and forth on how you measure it. And that's what the civil courts are for. Accusing them of bribing people to change the numbers and say, hey, we'll take care of you with our own money if you Mm -hmm. do that. Holy moly. We'll have to see what their response is. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much is Dominion Energy seeking to increase our natural gas bills? Layla, are we going to be opening up our wallets big time if they get their way? Yeah, well, they want to increase bills for their more than a million residential customers by $13 a month starting in 2025. And there's potential for more cost increases each year after that. They've asked the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio to approve this plan, which would raise monthly distribution costs by 30% from $43.30 to $56.34. And this is a proposal that includes two riders that would increase each year and go toward paying for infrastructure investments. Overall, once you factor in the cost of natural gas usage, they're predicting that the average residential customer will see a 16.8% annual increase on their bills. And for, for Dominion, that means a $212 million increase in their yearly revenues. Dominion said that they're asking for these increases because they've invested $4 billion into infrastructure in Ohio, and they still haven't recovered a billion of that through the current rates. The cost to operate and maintain service, labor, material and construction expenses, they've all risen substantially, they say. The current rates give them a much lower rate of return than what the PUCO had earlier said was reasonable. So this increase would put their their rate of return in, in that you know reasonable range. So all of this has to go through the PUCO's rate case process, which means that regulators and third parties can scrutinize it and, and submit testimony. We have to acknowledge that Dominion has invested hugely in infrastructure. We've seen it. We've we've seen it in our neighborhoods. We see it all over town. They they have done what First Energy has not done, which is to go back, dug things up, made made sure it's all there. Whether and they're and they're right that the cost of doing so has skyrocketed in recent years. You guys both know you and, and and Laura know the cost of construction went up way up during the pandemic. The the question is the numbers. And I hope we get an accurate telling. They should get reimbursed if they're making that investment. Surely we should pay for that because it keeps the gas coming into our houses. It sounds like the Consumer Council doesn't Mm -hmm. really buy their numbers and wants to see a much fuller accounting. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, they've taken issue with their their riders in particular. They said that in the last year, Dominion charged customers $256 million through the pipeline program rider and $95 million through the capital expenditure program rider. And they seem to be suggesting that that this uh, these riders are being abused. Yeah, we'll have to see. I mean, they, they are owed the money for their improvements. It's just, <laughs> are they exaggerating what they want? There was a, a mention in the story of a different gas company mm-hmm. that went in for a colossally big rate increase and they got about a third of it. So yeah, maybe- yeah that was Columbia Gas. They had asked, uh, initially applied for $221 million in yearly rate increases, but after reaching a settlement, the PUCO gave them uh, granted them 68.19 million. 
So it really was a fraction of what they were looking for. So I guess this is not a foregone conclusion. It will yeah. depend on what happens in the hearings here. Yeah. And maybe the gas companies know we're going to get about a third. So let's triple what we think we should get. Right. <laughs> that could be it. Then maybe that's it. That's the Ho strategy here. Hopefully the PUCO will represent us and do the right thing. You are listening to Today in Ohio. This should come as a surprise to absolutely no one. What is the snag that Cleveland has hit in its $2 billion pipe dream to overhaul the international airport? Laura. I like that you refer to it as a pipe dream because, yes, the ch there are changes, there are snags. And I was like, well, I really, really wasn't banking on this happening the way they said it was anyway. Because lo and behold, that $2 billion price tag, which I think we all wondered how they were really going to pay for that, is already ballooned to $2.9 billion. <laughs> yeah. And the leases on the air the airlines who are supposed to be paying for this, they're not signing up for this right now. They wanted to get new leases in hand by the end of this year so that they had a timeline to start building via breaking ground in 2025. But instead, the airlines have balked. They've just extended their regular leases for two years, and they're not looking to break ground till at least 2026 at this point. Right. I've said from the start, there is no way the airlines are going to make a $2 billion gift to the city of Cleveland. Not going to happen. Now, $2.9 How did that happen either? I mean, when did it go from 2 to $2.9 I love the way the city billion. does business. We're billion. A billion, right. I mean, it's just, th this was entirely foreseeable. I, I'll be surprised if this ever happens. And really, yeah. what we really want out of that airport is clean bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> Our favorite topic on this podcast is the airport bathrooms. Um, and yes, they actually have about $2 million coming from the federal government to give those bathrooms a refresh, which we've talked about on this podcast. So it's not another additional $2 million for that. So that is supposed to happen in the meantime. So they'll, you know, put a Band-Aid on a bad situation and then they're still trying to build this new terminal piece by piece in the same place. But yeah, they, they think the airlines are going to pay increased <laughs> fees to yeah. park there. And I, I, I just don't see it. And if right. they do, they're going to be passing those costs on to the customers. However, I, I don't know if I told you guys this when I came back from Florida, but I've been the stauncher, staunch like defender of the airport saying it's not that bad. But like I sat on a duct taped seat in the Spirit Airlines waiting area and I was like, really? Duct taped seats? I mean, what happened to all the seats that are sitting in the D concourse where, you know, um, the, the airline that went, or Continental, sorry, Continental. Um, that's just sitting there empty. Can we have those seats so we don't have these ones duct taped? Well, when you flew to Key West, you did send us all a note that morning about the disgusting state of the bathrooms. I don't understand how fixing the bathrooms, overhauling the bathrooms is going to make them cleaner. That's a maintenance issue. That's a personnel issue. They just aren't keeping them clean. They're, right. They're... You don't need a refresh to pick up toilet paper off the floor. <laughs> <laughs> okay. More on the airport. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Yesterday, we talked about an appellate court killing a massive lawsuit involving PFA Forever Chemicals. Today, we know that Ohio is getting a bunch of money because of a settlement involving those chemicals. Lisa, how much and who's paying? 
Yeah, and it's actually the same company that was involved in the story you just talked about. There was an announcement yesterday by Governor Mike DeWine and Attorney General Dave Yost uh, talking about a $110 million settlement in a 2018 lawsuit that was filed by then Attorney General DeWine, and it was versus the E.I. DuPont de Nemours and Company and also Camours. The suit alleged 500,000 pounds of PFOAs, which is a subtype of PFA Forever Chemicals, was dumped by the defendants into the Ohio River and released into the air. And this comes from the manufacture of Teflon products at a West Virginia plant that's been cranking it out since the 1960s. Yost says the settlement avoids the uncertainties of a jury trial and the lump sum payment avoids issues related to the company's possible insolvency. The money will be used for PFA monitoring and remediation, mostly in Southern Ohio, where they were mostly affected. And the attorney that was involved in the other case, Rob Bylot, who's from Cincinnati, he helped Ohio with this suit. It's one of many suits uh, that many uh, counties and, and, and cities have, and states that have used PFAs. 3M, there was, a, there was a big settlement in June against 3M, $10.3 billion for contaminated water, and Corteva had to pay $1.19 billion earlier this year as well. The amount of money that Ohio keeps winning in settlements is staggering. I mean, we seem to talk about this fairly regularly. Dave Yost puts out press releases almost every week about another big settlement. There's a ton of money pouring into the to the state coffers from a lot of these sources. I imagine that class action suit that was killed will get retooled so that it's more acceptable and they'll try again. You are listening to Today in Ohio. How big was the bureaucracy when Cleveland ran this thing? Layla, how many top-level executive jobs are being added to the nonprofit group that will operate the West Side Market? Well, earlier we we said they announced Rosemary Mudry as the first executive director for Cleveland Public Market Corporation, and and now they're adding six top-level jobs to the new market management team. These job openings were posted on Wednesday. And the private nonprofit that is going to be running the market next year says that they're accepting applications on a rolling basis, and they'll begin interviewing candidates in January. The salary totals range from $350,000 to $385,000 for all of these new positions combined. The jobs they're looking to fill include an operations director who would make up to $80,000 a year who would run the day-to-day operations of the market and keep stuff in good repair. There would be an assistant operations director, a marketing director who does all the branding and social media, public relations, stuff like that, a development and partnerships director who raises money uh, for capital expenses, program expenses, and, and things like that, and then merchant and leasing coordinator who recruits new merchants, very important role, <laughs> to fill all the vacancies and diversify the product offerings. And then there would be a finance and office manager who would manage the market's financial business and, and operations. You know, this thing was running in the red when the city was running it. So it's, it's an enterprise fund. It's supposed to pay for itself. It wasn't. The city taxpayers were having to kick in money. And the city had a department that operated this thing. I just, I keep wondering how this nonprofit is a smart idea when you start to add all these extra costs on top of it. It's just, it's a lot. And you've got to pay those people. You've got to pay all the bills. 
for an operation that had been running in the red, wouldn't it be smarter to try and get some traction before you start adding on these expenses? How do you get traction before you have these kinds of people in the in these positions? I, I kind of disagree. I think you need these jobs to run the market. I would, these, these are kind of the basics. I would agree with you, Layla, but some of these jobs sound like they overlap a little bit. Here's like my other question. Ones? The city was operating the West Side Market, right? They're giving that up. Did they cut any jobs? Which did who cut any jobs? The city. The city, the city well, had people dedicated had to the West Side Market. So, running it. I'm sorry. I mean, who was who was running the market before? Really? But Let but me... what, what, they had employees that were dedicated to the West Side Market. They're no longer running the market. So have those positions been dissolved from That's the budget? That's a good question. But I'm not exactly sure who which employees were de- dedicated to running the market, or if the the market was just a part of other things that they had to do. And that's the lack of this kind of structure in the past, I think, is what turned the market to crap over the years. I, okay. I would I would second that as well. But they really need to show results pretty quickly. My, my question is actually whether they're going to recruit anyone with experience to do these jobs at the salary mm-hmm. ranges that they've pitched. I mean, anyone on, who no. has the experience necessary to manage the market's financial management and business operations – won't do it for $46,000 a year. Right, but come on. You had to have people that were maintaining that place and cleaning that place and removing trash from that place. There had to be a number of jobs that were tied to the West Side market. Has the taxpayer saved that money or have those people just been placed elsewhere and there's no savings from giving up the operation of this? Well, we should take a look at That's a great question. Yeah, but my suspicion is that it has always been part of someone's you know job and just a small part of it and and that it really has not gotten the attention that it deserves from any one city official we should check let's find out you're listening to today in ohio cleveland heights native travis kelsey has lit the nfl on fire in his time playing for the kansas city chiefs Yesterday, though, he revealed some history that should once again have Browns fans thinking they are cursed. Laura, what did he say? Well, he wanted to play for the Browns. And wouldn't we all love that if Travis Kelsey (laughs) was playing for the Browns and Taylor Swift was visiting here regularly? Um, Not happening. Sorry, Cleveland. But Machine Gun Kelly wants to pay him and his brother five hundred thousand dollars and basically provide breakfast and coffee from his restaurant every day if they would come home and play for the browns and that's what started that because machine gun kelly was on their podcast which is one of apple's most popular for the year and he's a shaker heights high school alum and obviously the kelsey brothers are cleveland heights high school alum and so he was saying come back and play and that's when travis was like look i i practically cried actually i think he did cry he cried he says he says that that might have scared the Browns off from drafting him because he was drafted in the third round. It wasn't like he was a first round pick. He begged them. He begged yeah. them to draft him. This this star of a football player, four time Pro Bowler, two time Super Bowl champion. The guy's an amazing receiver. Begged the Browns to draft him. They went in another direction. The Browns are a disaster. That was an amazing revelation. We could have had him here. We could have had them both. You know, his brother. I know. Is, wouldn't that be so cool? Yeah, it's just—it's one of those things you just shake your head. Browns fans just have to feel totally cursed. 
And of course, you would bring in the Taylor Swift angle because for you, you don't care about the football. You just care. About I don't care about the football. But OK, I'm sorry. As, aside from her music and the fact that my daughter is like the world's biggest fan, we just, you know, they just did the Spotify unwrapped um, thing where it's like and we're in the top half percent of the world's Swifty listeners. But anyway, I mean, Who think is? about the Cleveland economic- or your family. No, me, my family. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, think about the economic juggernaut of Taylor Swift coming to Browns games. That would I mean, she's yeah. like an economy to herself. So I aside agree. from her and the music, it's a big deal. They could have had Russell Wilson last year. They didn't get him. There's so many could haves, and they always end up going in the wrong direction. This is just the latest. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The departure of Ray Leach as CEO of Jumpstart has left some very big shoes to fill, and people have been wondering whether the replacement would come from inside or outside the nonprofit agency that helps startups. Lisa, now we know who got the job. Her name is Julie Jackano. She's currently an executive at Metro Health. She was named the new CEO after a nationwide search that looked at 275 candidates. She'll become Jumpstart's second CEO after the departure of founder Ray Leach, who left to work on a new fund called the Ohio Fund, which is a private venture capital fund. Jackano has been with Metro Health since 2012. She's currently the executive vice president and chief strategy and innovation officer there. While she was there, she improved community health outcomes, advanced health equity, and uh, helped commercialize uh, Metro Health technological innovations. Jumpstart board chair Jeannie Coughlin says that Jackano's deep experience with healthcare will provide a fresh viewpoint and help identify novel opportunities for investment in the greater Cleveland area. It's always interesting, the debate about whether to elevate somebody internally or go get a fresh perspective from outside. Ray Leach has been the sole CEO since this thing started, and he has a lot of people that he's brought along. I'm sure the internal candidates are disappointed, but getting that outside perspective often does freshen up an agency. We'll have to see how they do. It's a, it's the nonprofit. Ray has moved on to a for-profit, which has a lot more freedom to do things. And I, I, I'm glad they kind of went outside the structure, but they picked somebody local. I think somebody who really already knows, you know, the Cleveland situation. So I think that's a that's a that's a big plus. Yeah, it's an interesting development. You're listening to Today in Ohio. we got a short podcast today. We're done for Thursday. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens. Come back Friday to wrap up the week of news.